We've got some exciting things happening that we want to uh, remind you of. Some of you, how many of you noticed that we've been re-roofing the roof of the chapel? Yeah, when I say we, you know what I mean. Yeah, it's not me up there, but yeah, we're, we're doing that. So, and, and that's been kind of an eyesore for a while, so we're glad to, to take care of that and, and get that all squared away. And, uh, and then today is what? The burrito bowl, right? Steve, you didn't even know it's a burrito bowl. Yeah, it's a burrito bowl today. It's, it's when we traditionally do a, a football game. We've been doing this, I think, 20 years or so. So we'll have to get to do the math on that. But it's been a long time. It's old guys, young guys. And by the way, just to let you know, old guys have been dominating this series. So that's why we like to talk about it. This is the trophy. It's got all the old guys stuff. I mean, let, you know, 213, old guys. All right, there might have been one young guys in there somewhere, but it's mostly all old guys. And uh, that's why we have such a nice trophy, because it's the old guys celebrating. This is what we've done, you know. Old guys rule, young guys drool. You know, that's, we're, we're just, we're pumped about the game, and we're going to do it one more time. It's going to be cold out there, but that's all right, because we win. So it, it's going to be good. By the way, several people have come up to me saying, is this my age? No, this is not my age. I'm years, years, and years younger than this, practically decades. But uh, that's not my age, just to let you know. But uh, the other thing is the Operation Christmas Child boxes. When's the last day to bring them in? Next Sunday. That's right. Next Sunday's the last day. Load them up, bring them in. What a privilege it is to be able to bless kids in third world countries and Give them the message of the gospel that there's a God who loves them and Jesus died for them. And it's a, it's a blessing to be a part of it. We, we want you to, to keep that in mind. And I got to tell you, again, first of all, just thanks for being here at Grace. Uh, we appreciate you coming, watching online, uh, one church in two locations, and we're just having a, a great time. I'm so excited about an outreach opportunity that we have coming up in, in December, we're doing a series called You've Been Gifted. And in that series, uh, we will be handing out cards, actually the week before it starts. And these cards are a way for us to impact our community to give these out. Now, you can only give them with, with cost. So it costs you something to give out one of these invite cards to our series. We've designed it to where if you're, say, in a line somewhere at the grocery store or Walmart, that you can step in front of the person in front of you, pay their bill. Be careful who you step in front of. Pay their bill and then just hand them this card that basically will have the graphic of our series and it'll say, hey, like you, we get the busyness of Christmas, but I just wanted to to give you this gift as a small token, as a reminder of the greatest gift that God has given to us the gift of his son, and that's what we're celebrating Christmas time. So give him this card on the flip side, has our uh, church and the service times. And I just can't wait to see how uh, Sandusky County, Seneca County is impacted when we unleash a couple thousand people giving out these cards. And the reason I'm mentioning it now is you're going to have to factor that in. We want you to be involved, so we want you to be thinking, hey, how could I bless somebody with a gift, somebody who's not a believer, and then give them this card? You can do it without them knowing who you are. You can even do it anonymously. You can do it at a drive-up, order your food, pay for the person behind you or whatever, ask the person to pass the card along, McDonald's, whatever you want to do, but we want you to kind of factor that into your Christmas planning that you want to use some money to bless some people and remind them about what Christmas is all about. Got it? Okay, got it. Good. That's great. Okay, so just keep that in mind. Today, we are continuing in the series, Outlaws, Faith-Inspired Defiance. And this series is through the book of Daniel, where we find Daniel and his three friends constantly opposed to their culture, where he is actually defying authority in obedience to God. And so that's a a cool um, thing that we've been seeing in the first three chapters of Daniel. And now we're going into chapter 4. We're actually going to try to cover chapter 5 and uh, get both of those chapters in. 
And basically, the next two chapters, it continues with Daniel in the same role. We're at risk of his life. He's speaking truth into people's lives, people in authority over him on earth. And he's telling them what needs to happen and, and what God has ordained. And actually, in chapter 5, it's about King Nebuchadnezzar. We've already been introduced to him. And uh, we've heard about him the last, last two weeks, last three chapters. And then today, we're also going to hear in chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 4. In chapter 5, we're going to hear about another king named King Belshazzar. And uh, that's, that's where we're heading. By the way, let me introduce Belshazzar real fast. And it, it kind of sounds like Daniel's name. Daniel was given a new name when he went to Babylon, Belteshazzar. Well, this king is Belshazzar. Kind of sounds familiar. It's, it's not exactly the same. But Belshazzar is actually a grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this is one of those chapters, chapter 5, where p critics of the Bible used to always point to and say, well, here's an example, Daniel chapter 5, where the Bible gets history wrong and the Bible can't be trusted when it speaks about history. That's what everybody thought because archaeologists were able to dig up in Babylon area, which is about 50 miles from uh, modern-day Baghdad. It's in Iraq. And uh, what was happening there is the critics would say, well, hey, we've dug up all the records of these kings that list all their reigns in order, and Belshazzar's not listed. And so they believed that for, for decades. They said, well, this is all wrong, and the Bible can't be trusted on this. They don't get this right. They don't get history right. And that was the way everybody thought until, not in Babylon, but actually in the city, the ancient city Ur in Iraq, modern-day Iraq, they uncovered something they call the cylinder of Nabonidus. And this cylinder proved that Belshazzar existed. And actually, the cylinder was the cylinder of Nabonidus. He's considered the last king of Babylon, about four kings after Nebuchadnezzar, but it was a very fast succession of kings. And Nebuchadnezzar writes this prayer on this cylinder, and part of the prayer is to pray for his son, who is reigning as king over the city of Babylon. And so all of a sudden, the evidence comes in, and then the critics are proved wrong, and the Bible once more is right. And now since then, since this cylinder of Nabonidus has been discovered, there's been all kinds of tablets and everything from Babylon, that all, the ancient city of Babylon, that also mention Belshazzar. But again, just, just kind of an example. And really, it's kind of a pride thing uh, where people interact with the Word of God. They think they know more. But that's kind of what we're talking about, pride. The problem with pride is that it affects all of us. We're going to see that it affected the greatest king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. But it also affected the last king of Babylon, King Belshazzar, just like it affects us. The problem with pride is that it's one of those sins that we don't easily see in our life. And it, it's kind of a core sin that hides in us and it's very difficult for us to see it. How many of you think that you have an issue with pride? Put your hands up. If you think you have an issue with pride. Okay, see, now everybody without their hand up, that means that you're sitting there thinking, I don't have an issue with pride. That's it. That's what we're talking about. This is the point. We all have an issue with pride. It's just very difficult for us to see. And on the surface, no doubt, there's some of you sitting here, no, Kevin, really, I don't think pride is my deal. Well, maybe afterwards... You'll, you'll expand your thinking and maybe think that it is your deal because pride, whether we see it or not, it's something that we have to deal with in our lives because I believe we all have issues with pride. Now, as we go through chapters 4 and 5, story of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, story of Belshazzar in chapter 5, we're going to find basically three steps to deal with pride, how God dealt with pride. And I believe how God can deal with pride in our lives. First of all, is that 
that with the help of God, we expose pride in our life. That's the first step. We've got to see it. We've got to recognize it. We've got to expose pride in our life. And then secondly, we need to exchange that pride for God-given humility. That's what God wants us to do. And really, it's only by the grace of God that we can do that. And then if we do that, if we exchange our pride for humility, and we have to do this over and over and over again in our life, it's only then that I believe we can really exalt God and not ourselves. So you got it now? It's expose our pride, exchange our pride for humility. God can help us do that. And it's only then can we exalt God rather than ourselves. So it'll be a test on this. You got it? Okay, we're going to see this first in Nebuchadnezzar's life, and that's in Daniel chapter 4. And let me just kind of give you the, the, the background. So pride's a sin that we're kind of blind to. Well, here's how it, it popped out in Nebuchadnezzar's life, and probably seems a little more obvious to us. At this time that in Nebuchadnezzar's life, he's the king of the greatest city on earth. Archaeologists estimate that it could have been up to 200,000 people living in Babylon. This is a city in Iraq. And he's got this huge city. They estimate that the walls, it was built in a square, were 14 miles long on each side of the square. The city was surrounded by double walls. The outer wall was so wide that two chariots could pass themselves at a full run going opposite directions along the wall. The, that made the wall 56 miles long. It was, no, it was the greatest city of the, uh, in the world, and it ruled over the greatest empire in the world. And not only that, but they had decades of grain stored in the city. Anytime they warred back then, when they were at war... The philosophy would be, hey, just surround the city, even if it had great walls, and starve them out. But Babylon had great storehouses built, and they had decades worth of grain and food for their people inside the city walls. Well, then the other issue, even more important than food, was water, right? The city of Babylon had the river Euphrates flowing through the city under a wall through the middle of the city, and then out under a wall. And so they had unlimited supply of water, and they had decades of grain, they estimate 20 years of grain. All this is stored. <clears throat> Excuse me. And not only that, they had the hanging gardens of Babylon. How have you ever heard of that, the hanging gardens of Babylon? This is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. This kind of phraseology was coined in the first and second century before Christ, the Hellenistic period, when the Greeks took over the world, they started, they named kind of seven sites that kind of boggled the mind. One was the ancient pyramid, that's the only one still in existence. And then one of those was the hanging gardens of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar built these gardens on a huge ziggurat where they somehow found out how to pump water up, it cas cascaded down like waterfalls, and then this uh, pyramid-type structure was just filled with plants and gardens and vines and all this stuff, and you could see it over the walls from outside of Babylon. It's like a mountain inside the city. And Nebuchadnezzar actually built this for one of his wives because she came from a different place that wasn't as arid as uh, the Iraq area was. And she was used to mountains and foliage and all that. And he built that just to make her less homesick. Well, at this time in Nebuchadnezzar's life, he has a dream. Another dream, not the statue dream. But after that, he has another dream. And the dream is basically that this tree starts growing. And, it, and it's just huge. And the size of this one tree, it reaches up to the heaven and it kind of fills the whole earth. And it's got all kinds of fruit on its branches. And, and all the animals of earth come and eat of the tree and kind of enjoy its shade. And it's sort of taking care of everything. And it's just a great tree. And it just keeps growing bigger and bigger. And then a watcher or an angel shows up and kind of shouts out, cut the tree down. Cut the tree down and remove all of its branches. And, and anyway, as... Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He knows this is an important dream. 
just like last time with the statue, but he doesn't know what it means. And so he goes to, straight to Daniel this time, and he says, hey, Daniel, what's the scoop? What's the, what's the interpretation of this dream? What does it mean? I need to figure this out. And Daniel basically tells him, wow, and this is this faith-inspired defiance. Daniel tells him, this is bad news. Not a whole lot of guys telling Nebuchadnezzar, hey, I got some bad news for you. Not a great position to put in after we've already seen about Nebuchadnezzar. We, we get that. And Daniel says, hey, th this is really bad news. Nebuchadnezzar kind of sees that Daniel's reacting that way. He says, hey, Daniel, I trust you. Don't hold back. Don't be afraid. Give it to me straight, which Daniel probably would have done anyway. But Daniel then basically tells him, hey, you're the tree. And God's going to take you down. And for seven years, you are going to be living like an animal, basically, as a judgment of God. And then after that, you're going to be restored. And so he tells them all that. And then, the chat, then that section ends right there. We don't really get to see how Nebuchadnezzar responds. And he may have responded pretty well. Because the next thing we know, it, it's 12 months before anything else in this story happens. And that's where I want to pick up reading in Daniel chapter 4, beginning with verse 29. Or, or let me back up to 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, the king. And then here, here's the deal. Here's how it picks up. Twelve months later, after Daniel's told him the dream, what it meant. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. By the way, after Daniel told him the dream and it's bad news, he's telling him, hey, humble yourself and follow God. Anyway, 12 months later, he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself has built as a royal residence by the might of my power for the glory of my majesty? And while the word was still, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. So you see what's happening? He's just saying, he's on the palace, he's overlooking all the splendor of Babylon. He's kind of bragging to himself, wow, man, I, I, I'm something. And just as he's saying that, a voice from God breaks in. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind. And your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. So bam, at that moment, while he's on the rooftop, judgment comes, and Nebuchadnezzar sort of loses his mind. He starts acting like an animal. There's actually a clinical diagnosis for this. But he starts acting like an animal. He's eating grass the whole nine yards. And so they, you know, they just can't have him in the palace. They just put him out. He's the king. Nobody kills him. But that, he's just out there in the field, basically acting like an ox for seven years of his life. And he knew it was going to happen. Daniel told him it was going to even told him it would be seven years. And then at the end of that seven years... Daniel said what was going to happen is that God would allow him to regain his senses and then humble himself before God. And so it all plays out just like the, just like the dream played out a year ago. This all starts happening to Nebuchadnezzar. And it's like even though he's warned, he still doesn't see what an offense his arrogance is to God, because even if he changed, it only lasted 12 months. But then God gives him this opportunity, God-given opportunity, to exchange his pride for humility. His pride's exposed, and now he's judged, and now he's given this opportunity. God humbles him, but he allows him to be restored after seven years. We'll pick it up in verse 34. But at the end of that period, seven years is over, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven... And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. 
and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. That doesn't sound so humble. But anyway, you know, he's saying he humbles himself toward God. And God reestablishes his sovereignty over this kingdom. All that happens. He finally got the message. But in God's judgment, it cost him seven years of his life. That's kind of what's happening. And remember, God had already revealed himself to King Nebuchadnezzar. He did it once, you know, with the statue. He had done this. Over, he did it once with the furnace. This has happened over and over. And then he has this other dream where he's been warned. And he still falls to this pride. And I think that's, that's the trouble that a lot of us have. Pride is very hard to root out. Of our lives. And then finally, he exalts God rather than self. He finally exalts God in the very last verse of the chapter. It says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true, and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. And King Nebuchadnezzar is exactly right. We've kind of heard this language a little bit before from King Nebuchadnezzar. It seems at this time he's taking it a lot more personally because God has humbled him in a lot more personal kind of a way. So this is how it all plays out. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar, so we see these issues of pride working in his life. Now he has a grandson. There's actually four kings in rapid succession. They keep killing each other. And then the fourth king... Is King Nabonidus. Nabonidus, he's a, he's a son-in-law to King Nebuchadnezzar, married King Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. And then he has a son, Belshazzar, which we find out from history actually happened, of course. And then what happened is there's a story in the Bible in chapter 5 where King Belshazzar, now it's 50 years after Nebuchadnezzar, he knows everything about his grandfather and all the things that happened to him. He knows all the evidence of God, the evidences of God that have happened in the first three, the first three and four chapters, three chapters we already viewed and chapter four today. All this is in his pretty recent history. He's aware of all this stuff. But we find him just at the end of the Babylonian empire and he's in Babylon and he's partying with his friends. He, actually, we know historically that Babylon fell uh, on the evening before this big uh, ceremony to the moon god called Sin. And anyway, they're celebrating this the night before. They're having this huge thing. He invites a thousand of his nobles to come to this party. And so they all come. Anybody who's anybody in Babylon shows up. And, and then as you read the passage, drinking's mentioned like five or seven times. It just keeps coming up. And the implication is he's not making great choices. But he's, he's sitting around with his friends. They're drinking. And then he says, hey, I have an idea. Let's go get the articles from the Jerusalem temple that we have stored in our treasury. And let's get those cups and bowls that were used to worship Yahweh. Let's bring those in and we'll use these for our party. This is great wine, but we'll, it'll be, you know, this will be cool. This will be fun. This will be something different. We'll drink wine out of these golden cups that came from the temple and so they do that but by the way it's been my experience you know when you're between like 15 and 25 a young man especially if somebody's opened any alcohol at all and somebody says hey I have an idea pretty much everything's going south right after that you know you probably ought to just get out of there I remember one time a friend of mine who this is at the time we were just getting our licenses you know around 16 years old and then he thought 
that he would do a Superman, which was right on the outside of a guy's car. So you got a 16-year-old just got his license driving, and he laid on the hood like super, you know, like he's flying, and hang, hang on to the sides. And then they went down this country road. Well, they just, you know, it was working out pretty well, so they just went faster and faster and faster. Finally, they're going about 50 miles an hour. And my friend, who weighs about 210 pounds at the time, he's hanging on. And they're just having a great time. He's Superman. Well, at some point, they needed to stop the car. So they stopped the car. They didn't stop it. like They didn't slam on their brakes, but they stopped the car. Well, 210 pounds going 50 miles an hour, when you start slowing that down, it takes a lot of finger strength to hang on to the edge of a roof. Well, he just went sailing. He did a Superman. He just went sailing right through the air and landed on the pavement in front of the car. It didn't work out so well, you know. Hey, I have an idea. I'll do a Superman. Didn't work out so well. I remember another time I was kind of the same thing where I was with a friend. We knew about that. I was with another guy named Scott, and we were driving in my pickup, and he was on the passenger side, and he hey, I have an idea. And he opened the door, and he stood up, so he's standing up on the open door. We're going about 30 miles an hour through this neighborhood, and he was yelling some stuff at some people. Again, he had a great idea. Well, the road curved, so I just curved with the road, and I'm, then I say something to Scott, and Scott's not there anymore. He's... I look at my rear view and he's rolling down the, the road, the pavement, you know. That didn't work out so well. I remember when I was about that age, the first day I learned to ski, the guy who taught me how to ski was named Brian, another teenage guy from, from my football team. And he brought me up there and, and then he says, the very first day, after I kind of learned, the second half of the day, he goes, hey, I have an idea. And it was, I think you can ski Mach 1 at Breckenridge and... That didn't work out so well. You know, it, it turned out to a yard sale, which is ski talk for, you know, skis, boots, and poles scattered all over the mountain. And that's, you know, it didn't work out so well. But anyway, so that's kind of what's going on with Belshazzar. And then right in the middle of them enjoying their wine with the cup and the bowls from the temple in Jerusalem... All of a sudden, something crazy happens, and we see it in verse 5. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 5. Suddenly, right in the middle of this party, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. It's kind of losing bowel control here. And then verse 7, And the king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. And the king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Note. Notice he's not giving out a way to be the second ruler in the kingdom. We always wondered about that until about 150 years ago when they found the cylinder of Nabonidus, where then we find out, oh, Nabonidus is living. He's still a king. He's just not in Babylon, and he's left Babylon in charge of Belshazzar. And so Belshazzar, he's number two. So the best he can give anybody is number three. Wow, that all worked out, again, just by what God said at the very beginning. But anyway... So all these guys, he calls them all and says, if you can read this message that was just miraculously written on this wall. How many have heard the saying, the writings on the wall or write, handwriting on the wall? Or Put your hands up. Yeah, everybody got This is where it comes from. But that saying is used as an idiom for impending doom, right? Writing on the wall, that means, uh-oh, it's coming. Judgment's coming is kind of what that means. Well, that's the deal. So, of course, nobody can interpret it. And then the queen, probably the queen mother, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, Belshazzar's mom, says, hey, remember Daniel. There's this guy. He's probably in semi-retirement right now. He is an expert at this dream stuff. Get him. And because he can do the dream stuff, he'll, he'll know this. He knows all this stuff. So they bring Daniel in. He repeats the offer. Hey, I'm going to give you, you know, uh, clothing in purple. I'm going to hang a gold necklace around your neck. I'm going to give you a third 
position of third in the kingdom. And Daniel basically says, you know, you can keep your stuff for yourself, but I'll tell you what the deal is. And then Daniel says, hey, by the way, your father, God had already dealt with him on this pride issue. And he starts listing some things. He starts reminding Belshazzar of what Belshazzar already knew, but he didn't learn from so well. And then he says, hey, basically, what this writing means is that, hey, you've been weighed and you've been found wanting and your kingdom is going to be taken from you and it's not going to end well. And then Belshazzar, he actually, he rewards Daniel anyway, gives him the purple cloak and hangs a gold chain on his neck and he becomes third ruler in the kingdom. But Belshazzar, as far as we know, never exalts God. He never takes up humility. He never exalts God. As a matter of fact, he dies that night. What's happening as a backstory, while all this was happening and the party was happening, and Nebuchadnezzar was either in the Ur building temples to false gods, which he did a lot of projects like that, or it could be that he's, he's out there confronting the Persian army that's threatening his borders, but Belshazzar's not worried about any of that. He's in Babylon, double walls, impregnable defenses. He's got an army with him. Everything's good for him. He, he's having a party. Well, that night, and what's happened leading up to this, is the Persians, they have come up river of the Euphrates. This is all history. And they have dug a bunch of channels to reroute, to divert the Euphrates River. And so all the channels are dug, and then at the appointed time this night, they open up the last wall. All the, a lot of the water from the Euphrates is diverted. It's not now flowing under the city. And then they march on Babylon. History tells us that the water level of the Euphrates River dropped to thigh high. And so it looks like a river, but the army is able to just march down the river and under the wall, nobody had been able to go under the wall because it was so thick and there were double walls. You couldn't hold your breath enough to get from one end to the other. And then they had kind of an iron fence uh, down in the water. And so history's telling us when the water level drops, they're able to just walk under the wall and breathe. And then they get to this kind of iron gate that is normally underwater. And they're, they easily break through that. Bam, they're in the city. They conquer the city of Babylon, and then that night, Belshazzar is executed. He's killed. And we don't know, there's no record that, that he humbled himself, because that would have surely been included. And probably Belshazzar thought, yeah, I got, wow, this is bad news. God's going to take this kingdom away. Of course, when he, told my, when he told my grandfather stuff, that was like 12 months later, so maybe I can straighten this all out. But he had no time. As a reminder of us, as we deal with our pride, that God has not guaranteed any specific amount of time for us to deal with things in our life. He has not promised us. He doesn't owe us or promise any of us that we will live through this entire day. And, and if he takes our life before this day is over, that's God's prerogative. And, and we would have no complaints because of the life that he's already given us. So when it gets to us, we see how God's humbled Nebuchadnezzar and now Belshazzar, and then the issue is, well, what about us? See, the same process has to happen in our life. First of all, we need to expose pride in our life. God will help us with that. But I gotta tell you, if we're not about doing this, God will do it for us, and then that's usually a painful process. Does that make sense? Everybody, one day, will be humbled before God. Everybody's pride will be exposed one day. But this is something that we need to continually do in our life. And it's hard because we're blind to pride. We can sit here and we can think, boy, I got a lot of issues. I don't really think pride's one of them. But it is. Pride is one of the issues that we deal with. Think about it. How many of you have read through the New Testament? Maybe you're reading through the latter part of the New Testament. And you'll read something 
and you'll feel like, boy, I, feel, I, I think you'll have like deja vu. It's like I just read this. Anybody? This, this happens a lot when you're reading through James and then 1 Peter. Because there's a passage in James and 1 Peter that, that's almost identical. Two different books. And they both say this. And they're both quoting from the Old Testament. They say, God opposes the proud. What I'm trying to say here is, over and over, God in the Bible, Old Testament and New. I, I was just reading a chapter in Proverbs this morning. It said basically the same thing. Over and over, God keeps telling us God opposes the proud. This is bad news for us because we have a hard time seeing pride in our life. And what that means is it's saying God stands permanently in active opposition to the pride in our life. God is always very opposed to the pride in our life. And, and we have a hard time seeing it. If you think about it, pride, it seems that pride was the very first sin ever committed. And not only that, it seems that pride is sort of a core of all other sins we do. Kind of like selfishness, which is tied to pride. It's all about us. That's the pride angle. It seems like pride is a core of all of our sins. So as we look at this through the pages of Scripture, we find out that maybe no sin offends God more than the sin of pride. And we have a hard time seeing it in our lives. But God in his goodness will expose it in our lives for our good. Although that can be painful. He'll expose it so we can exchange it for humility. That's, that's what God's telling us here. For Belshazzar, God had to get his attention. For Nebuchadnezzar, God had to get his attention for seven years. He got his attention. And the question is, what does God have to do to get our attention to expose pride in our life? Where does pride hide in your heart? That's what I've been thinking about the last few days. Where does pride hide in my heart? I mean, it's, it's not that well hidden. It's there. Where is it lurking in your accomplishments? Wow. You know, we'll give a nod to God. Yeah, I've accomplished this. And, yeah, you know, and God bless me. But I did this and this and this and this and this. Giving a nod to God is not good enough. Because we'll think, well, I accomplished this because I work hard. I work harder than the people that are around me. That's all pride. Think about it. If it's true, and, and hard work is good. God wants us to work hard. Keep our balance, you know, our, keep our life in balance, but work hard. How do we work hard? What, how do, any talent we have, that's been given by God. Any work ethic we have, that's a gift from God. Any health we have in order to be able to work 5 in the morning to 10 o'clock at night, that's a gift from God. All that is a gift. Yeah, you worked for it, but God gave you all the gifts you needed. And sometimes I don't think... It's easy for us to forget that and, and sort of think, yeah, God blessed me, but I kind of did all this. God paved the way or, you know, yeah, God's in my life, but yeah, I did all this stuff. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. That's pride lurking in our hearts. And maybe we don't even get anything good in our life. Ultimately, it's a gift from God. You see, pride is so hard to expose in our lives. I, I was just... Uh, heard a story about a pastor just this last week and uh, he's a pastor of a small town and he realizes pride is an issue in his life and so he decides he's going to have to deal with that well in his town there's a soup kitchen so he goes and he volunteers at the soup kitchen he says what's the worst job here and they say well the worst job is at night cleaning everything up mopping the floors and you know getting it all clean after we've we've done this all day and he goes okay I'll take that job 
And so that's what he does. He closes up the suit. He feeds people, closes it up, and then he mops the floors. And then, true story, you know, he, he's mopping the floor at midnight on a Friday night, and he catches himself thinking, I'm probably the only pastor in this town humble enough to be mopping these floors on a Friday night. I can relate to that guy, can't you? You see, even when we're trying to battle pride, we can have pride in that. And again, in the English language, sometimes pride could be good. If it's pride in, in you know, other people that are around us, and you know, it, there's some circumstances. But what I'm talking about is even pride like that, there's such a thin line before it becomes vertical pride. Where really it's impinging on our relationship with God. Because we're leaving God out of the equation somehow. And it, it just sneaks into our lives. We don't even realize it. And bam, it's there. I got to tell you, I think the worst kind of pride that Christians suffer from, just that must grieve God the most, is when Christians look at other people who aren't Christians and look down on them because of their behavior or the bad choices they're making or whatever. This, this is so offensive. It seems like it would be so offensive to God because why aren't we doing that very same sin? Well, it's only because God has saved us. God has shown us a better way to live, right? It's only because we know better because God's revealed it to us. It's only because he reached down into the slimy pit of sin wherever we're living and he pulled us up by his grace and he allowed us to see what he's done for us and the love he has for us and the grace he's offered us through his son Jesus. And so when we look at other people, it should always be out of love because knowing God loves them and knowing that's where I would be if I didn't have God in my life or some other grotesque version of that. We're all just fellow sinners, right? And we're just trying to throw the, the life jacket to somebody else that's drowning in their sin just like we were drowning. It's all grace. Anything we have, it's grace. If we're, we don't have a substance abuse problem, if we don't, it, it's grace. If we're able to work, hold down a job, be blessed, it's all grace. It's all God's gift. How can we take pride in any of that? But for the grace of God, there goes me. That's our attitude, right? That's how it should be. When we see anybody struggling in sin, struggling with their life, but for the great grace of God, but for the gifts God's given me, that's me. That's me without God in my life. That's me without God giving something to me. That's what I deserve. That's where I would be. We've got to get this down. I, it, we cannot refuse to humble ourselves before God in this way. I'll tell you, it's frustrating. I, I know how it is. You don't look down on them, but it's frustrating sometimes talking to non-believers. And, and they have pride too. How many times have you talked to somebody who didn't believe in God and they've responded to you with something like this? Well, I'm not going to believe in no God that would allow this, this, this to happen. I'm believing a God who would allow this earthquake, this tsunami, this innocent baby to die. I couldn't ever believe. Anybody hear some version of that? Think about how prideful that is. God creates us. He gives us a mind to think. And we use that mind to basically say this. This is what people are doing. Well, I, I can't believe in any God who would make a decision that I wouldn't make if I were God. That, how arrogant is that? I can't believe in a God who wouldn't make decisions just like me. We're putting ourselves on the same level as God. You know, the difference between God and, and us is God never gets confused and thinks he's us. You know, but we do that all the time, right? 
How grateful I am that I believe in a God and know that his ways are so much higher than mine. He's so much smarter than me that I can't figure him out. Because if I could figure him out, what would that mean? I'm as smart as God? That God's not smart enough. Right? We need to get this. Christian, non-Christian, we, we need to expose the pride in our life. And through God's grace, through his telling us, through his working through us, we can exchange that pride for humility. As a matter of fact, those verses I read, God opposes the proud. They both have something else. There's a flip side to that. But he gives grace to the humble. It's a gift. He gives grace to the humble. You know, if God exposes pride in our life, we can then exchange it, this pride for humility. We got to keep doing it. It's not a one time for all. But as a matter of fact, this is how the Christian life starts, right? We cannot become a Christian without coming to some point in our life where we've recognized, I am messed up. God loves me anyway, and he's provided a way that I can be forgiven for my rebellion against him. We can't become a Christian if we haven't humbled ourselves. We can't become a Christian thinking, well, I'm pretty good, and God's lucky to have me. So I guess I'll sign up. Doesn't work that way, right? It's only when we realize we're bankrupt. We That hell is the right thing for us. We've earned it. And that we can't do anything to unearn it. Except for God in his great mercy, his great love, his grace. Allowed his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay our penalty for sin. And then it's a gift if we would just embrace it. And he makes us this offer That if you would just believe, if you would just have faith, if you just trust, call it what you will. If we would just place our faith, trust, belief in Jesus, in Jesus alone. And we know that's the only way I could be made right. Nothing I can do. Just what Jesus did for me. It's a gift. That's when we humble ourselves. And in that moment, we, for a time, we exchange our pride for humility And God floods into our life and he teaches us a better way and he allows us to be able to exalt God. And then we go on with our Christian life and we still battle pride every day, I think. We've got to see it. What areas do you need to... Exchange pride for humility. What areas of your life that actually you're you're not exalting God? You're exalting yourself. These can be, I think there's so many ways pride creeps in our life and we're just oblivious. So I'll give you an example. I was reading a book a few months ago. And it was about this Christian guy. He was a a well-known theologian and he was a professor in a classroom. And somebody was arguing with him about something. You know, it could have been the existence of God or whatever. And they argue for a while. But then the student closes his argument with this big kind of sweeping statement. All the smart students that know, that are are kind of mentored by this professor, they know he has a killer answer to this. But the professor doesn't say anything. He just lets the class end. And so the students come up and they're like, why, how, how did you let it in that? Why didn't you say this? We, we've heard you say this before. Why didn't you just crush him? You had the argument. We all, we all have heard you say this. Why didn't you do it? And the guy says, I was practicing the discipline of not always having the last word. Well, I read that story and then I thought, well, that's, I'm going to do that for a while. So for a few weeks, a couple of months ago, I tried to practice the discipline of not having the last word. Didn't go so well, but, you know, I was trying that because that, I realized, was a source of pride. The fact that we have to have the last word, it's pride. 
The fact that our wife tells us when we're driving, turn right at the next block before we hit our turn signal, and that kind of bugs us a little bit. Oh, I wish I would have hit my turn signal a little earlier so she would know I know where I'm going. That's pride. Every little thing like that, it's all pride. And, of course, it impacts the biggest things in our life as well. But it's only when we get a handle on this, when God helps us to expose it, and then by God's grace we can exchange it for some humility with his direction, it's only then that we can truly exalt God and not self in our life. Where are you at? Do you ever wonder what it will take to get your attention? If we're not actively trying to root out pride in our life, and so God, in his love for us, is going to do that for us, you ever wonder what it's going to take in your life for God to get your attention? That scares me a little bit. I don't know about you, but it's all for my benefit. We need to humble ourselves. Let's, let's bow our heads and pray. Father, God, we thank you for your goodness and, and who you are and who we are. And Lord, we know humility starts right there, recognizing who we are, sinners, in light of your righteousness, your purity, your holiness, your justice. And God, we thank you for revealing yourself to us because we would have never figured it out on our own. And not only revealing yourself, Lord, but loving us self-sacrificially, making a provision for us to become a believer, the most important thing, that the most important gift in the universe that we get. And then, God, that you give us a whole book to tell us how to live and to guide us so we have this chance of living in a way that honors you sometimes. God, thank you. All that's a gift. Anything we accomplish that's good, it's a gift. God, help us to recognize you in every area of our life. And God, if there's somebody here who doesn't really have a relationship with you because they've never humbled themselves that first time because of their pride, Lord, that you would help them to see that it's, it's just your love that they're even sitting here. Lord, we pray that you draw them to yourself and help them turn their heart toward you just like you let us do. In Christ's name, amen.